This is Dr. Kara Shepard, and you're listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Thanks for listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Sorry for a bit of a podcasting hiatus. Been working on stuff at the farm over the past month, month and a half or so. And it's funny that, like, moving closer to things makes it harder to record podcasts when you record them in your vehicle driving because you're driving less distance. So this is actually, I think, the third time I have attempted to record this episode and I kind of get, like, interrupted because I get home. So... Here, here we go. I'm on. I'm all on the road this morning. I've got some calls a little bit further away. Gonna <laughs> try to get through this episode, which is gonna be on colostrum and failure of passive transfer, and kind of like talking about how uh, neonatal goat kid immune systems function and why that is important to having healthy goat kids. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, if you uh, have questions or you want to say hi or um, whatever and you want to find me on the internet, you can find my website at goatdoc.com. You can email me at goatdoccara at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at goat underscore doc. Um, and if you're doing this new thing called Clubhouse, um, I recently joined Clubhouse and I'm on there at goat doc probably going to be doing some uh like clubhouse rooms about you know talking about goats because that's what we do um so you can find me on there and uh yeah if you're really enjoying the podcast and you want to help spread the word and share with your goatee friends that is very helpful and if you would like to take a second it's awesome if you can take a moment and rate and review on apple podcasts or your podcast player app of choice because that tells the computer artificial intelligence algorithm that people are looking at the podcast and listening to it and liking it and then it shows it to more people so they can also look at it and listen to it and like it if you would like to join a small and growing group of really really awesome people who are uh think that supporting the podcast financially with a couple of dollars a month is something that they like to do you can check out our patreon page slash group at patreon.com slash goat doc or you can find it um through the connect area on my website and click on the Patreon uh, icon thingy. And I've been saying this, I think, I can't remember how many times I've said this, but I have a whole bunch of patrons to shout out because 
I am really bad at remembering to make a list of patrons to shout out. Some of you guys might be getting more than one shout out because like Patreon has these like tracking tools to be like, you did this for this patron. And then I don't always get to the computer to check it off. And then I make my list and I'm like, did I check that one off or not? I can't remember. So I figured it's better to thank you more than once than to not thank you at all. So here we go. Patrons that are largely way overdue for thank yous. Taylor B, Deborah L, Patricia O, Omar S, Terry and Trish J, Jeanette L, Trisha S, Susie M, Caitlin VB, Ellen G, Deborah A, Birgit E, Aaron B, Samantha S, Ella T, Leslie W, Chris S, Sarah W, and Sharon L. You guys are all awesome. Um... I uh, posted on Patreon within the last few days about, like, um, us doing, like, some Clubhouse stuff on Patreon, so um, if you're on there already, great, Uh, come find me, and I'll post more stuff about, like, you know, doing, like, a patron uh, Clubhouse room, which is, um, if you haven't heard of Clubhouse, and, like, I hadn't until very recently, uh, it is, like, kind of, like, talk radio on your iPhone. Um, It's still only available for iOS, so iPhone or iPad, um, you know, mobile, mobile Apple uh, users. And if you are on there, come find me patrons. I'm going to try to help facilitate getting you guys on there if you're not already because there's like this like in having an invitation gets you on there faster. Um, so we can chat about that. Um, more info to come on that. If you follow me on Instagram again at go underscore doc, that is going to be the place that I like mostly probably post if I'm going to do like a clubhouse room And it might be, as I get used to the interface a little bit more, it might be more like, here I am driving around in the truck and I'm going to just be like, time for a clubhouse room and I might just talk about goats to whoever happens to be around and wanting to listen. Tried to search for goat stuff on clubhouse and not really any there. Is anyone surprised? Not me. Um, But anyway, so that's happening. Um... I think that is most of the housekeeping stuff for the beginning of the podcast. So this podcast is provided with the intent to educate and inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice or veterinary care provided by your primary vet. And I strongly encourage you to establish and maintain a current and valid VCPR veterinary and client patient relationship with your local vet. Um, so failure of passive transfer, colostrum management, all of these things, uh, they're all kind of related. This episode, we'll see if I get this into one episode or if it becomes two episodes. Not quite sure yet. But I kind of am going to start by talking about really general how goat kid immune system works and, um, like, I mean, in vet school, at least, what, how we learn stuff is like, this is normal. You have to learn what's normal first, and then you can figure out what's abnormal. So that's kind of how I'm going to approach this. 
and it's like multi-faceted thing going on and the more you understand about each separate thing the easier the whole thing starts to come together um going to talk about placenta placentation here a little bit too um so if you haven't listened to already or if you want a refresher on the placenta and what that thing does um go back to listen to episode 23 uh, ode to the placenta so like pause and go listen to it or uh listen to this one then listen to that one or you know remember about placenta whatever works for you um but I am going to refer to that and some of the info in that episode may be helpful and it's there if you need it. Um, so talking about failure of passive transfer um, and colostrum management, really like the whole goal in talking about this and understanding this is to like have healthy, functional, well-growing goat kids. So, like, understanding why it's important helps you to have healthy, functional, well-growing goat kids, and that's what we all want. Goat kids are, like, if you think about the development of goat kids, they are in a sterile environment as they develop. So the inside of the uterus is sealed off from the outside environment in all normal pregnancies. It is a sterile environment. There is no bacteria in there. Uh, there There's no access for stuff from the outside to get to the inside unless something abnormal happens. So um, that fetal baby goat does not have any need for uh, protection from pathogens. So protection from all the bugs and stuff in the outside world, which there are billions of. Like your body and baby goat's body, once it's outside of its mom, is constantly assaulted by billions of microorganisms that are just in the environment that we can't see and that's just the way it is and our living bodies have developed multiple ways to protect the inside of the body from the outside of the body Uh, and and that's the immune system so the immune system is hugely complicated and immunology is hugely complicated and I remember taking immunology in vet school I think it was second year maybe it was first year I can't remember but it's insane immunology is completely insane it's very complicated um the the whole thing you know just blows your mind and it's one of those things where the more you learn about it the more you're like how is this even a thing and how does it even work even at all a little bit we're going to talk about um as far as the immune system we're going to talk about like antigens and antibodies as far as talking about like colostrum and developing immune system so Antigens and antibodies are probably things you've heard more about over the past 12 months. Uh, talking, I'm in, if you're listening in real time, this is March of 2021. So the last year, uh, everyone has become an armchair immunologist. 
and by by I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but we've already we've probably all heard in the news and the media the terms antigen and antibody, definitely antibody, um, more than ever before. So, but like I was thinking about that, you know, as I've been thinking about this episode, I was like, how anybody on the news ever really told you what an antibody is? And the answer is probably not. Like, you know, it's one of these things where you're like, oh, antibodies. And maybe we have some kind of like vague understanding of what that is. But like, do you, do you really, if someone asked you to say what an antibody is, what would you say? So here's what I would say is that an antibody is a protein uh, that is made by the immune system and its purpose is to protect the body from pathogens. And there are antibodies that are specific to different pathogens. So you have antibodies that are for, you know, the common cold, like rhinovirus. You have antibodies that if you are vaccinated for tetanus, you have antibodies for tetanus. If you have uh, been vaccinated for the flu this season, you have antibodies for the influenza virus, whatever type they seem to think is going to be important this year. Um, If you were vaccinated, like probably the vast majority of people were as you were a baby and then maybe again boosted like before you went to college or whatever, you were vaccinated for MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, um, and you have antibodies for those things. You may also have other immune system functions that help protect you from those things. Um, You can talk about like memory cells and things like that, um, which hang out and remember those things. Like most of us are not going to see measles, mumps, and rubella in our lifetime because we have had a very good job vaccinating against them and they're not around very much. So, but your body, so your body isn't constantly making antibodies for those things because it's not under like imminent threat of those things. But um, your body has, like, this whole, like, secondary um, part of the immune system, which is, like, long-term immunity. And in the event that you needed those antibodies for measles, mumps, rubella, your, like, memory cells would probably be like, oh, hey, I remember that thing. Let's take care of that. Let's make some antibodies. I may not, like, I'm just throwing those things out there. I don't know specifically the immunology mechanisms for those particular uh, diseases, so don't quote me. I'm just saying that it's, it's a lot more complicated than what I'm saying right now. In any case, antibodies, like, are in, in talking about colostrum and passive transfer, antibodies are, like, a very concrete thing. Because colostrum, so, and remember that colostrum is the first milk that is produced by the, the dam. Um, the mother of the fetuses produces colostrum for those babies once they're out. And uh, the production of colostrum really, like, is concentrated in that first 24 hours uh, for good reason, which we'll go into. And... Um, and then 
kind of dips off really so in goats as I was prepping for this episode found some good papers and actually um, like colostrum is detectable in like amounts that matter as far as like commercial consumption for up for five, about five days after um, kidding so if for like us when we are putting our animals into the production line we will milk them into a bucket and feed the milk for the first five days into the bucket rather than into the pipeline and then on day six they can go on the pipeline to have milk diverted into um, production because there's like rules about how much colostrum can be in milk for consumption not that it's going to hurt you because what is in colostrum that's special is antibodies so antibodies are proteins made by the immune system to do two things one is to like primarily they can they can do either of these things they can do probably some of them can do both of these things one is to like primarily neutralize uh, pathogens so like if you have antibodies for the flu because you got the flu vaccine your body uh, has these antibodies circulating because your immune system was stimulated by the vaccine the immune system was hey like hey i don't like that influenza virus i'm gonna make some antibodies to get rid of it so antibodies are circulating there's also cells that are like prepped to make more antibodies if necessary and the um the antibodies are out there they're hanging out they see the flu and then they stick on the flu and so they're like in the incredibles when mr incredible is like uh he's on that island and he's trying to get into the whatever the thing that he thinks is the bad guy i can't remember how this goes i gotta watch the incredibles but i just remember the part where he's like getting into the fortress and he like um there these things are like shooting these sticky balls at him these sticky like black rubber looking balls and they're sticky and they get stuck to him and then he can't do anything so (laughs) the antibodies are like the sticky black balls and mr incredible is like the pathogen the antibodies stick to the pathogen and then the pathogen is just like well i'm stuck and i can't you know attach itself to living cells like the influenza virus would attach itself to some kind of cells and like go in there and replicate hijack the cell and all that stuff and if it's stuck with all these antibodies then it can't do that so um, that is one thing that antibodies can do and the other thing that antibodies can do is to like stick to those pathogens in order to help the immune system like um, see them So some things are, like, really small. Some pathogens have mechanisms where they're, like, really good at hiding from the immune system. And then if you got antibodies for these things, then it it shows different kinds of cells it's like oh hey over here look at this thing it's bad and you should come kill it and they're like different types of white blood cells that have um different ways of destroying different things and if the antibodies stick to it and it's like hey look at this thing and then the white blood cells like oh i don't like that thing i'm going to kill it so that's how those are the two things that antibodies can do Now, talked a lot about, like, vaccines and antibodies made in response to vaccines, antibodies made in response to different pathogens, and um, the... And then also mentioned before that that, like, baby goat 
baby goat fetus is like developing in this environment with no pathogens. So baby goat, baby goat fetus immune system has no experience looking at anything and doesn't uh, like have the ability to make antibodies to protect itself from the things that are outside. That is why baby goat needs colostrum. Uh, and this all, and now let's talk about placenta a little bit. I hope this is all going to kind of come together a little bit. This is a really hard thing to kind of talk about all aspects of and have it all kind of nicely fold together. So we'll see. Um, so when baby goat is inside mom's uterus, uh, it's getting all of its nutrition and oxygen and everything it needs to stay alive through the placenta. And remember, again, you can go back for details about how awesome the placenta is. Go listen to episode 23. Um, but, and also in that episode, I talk about the different types of mammalian placenta. And ruminants have a cotyledonary placenta, which um, has, you know, looks a certain way when it comes out. And then also, like, has... Um, different protection, like different layers of different types of tissue between the blood of the dam and the blood of the fetus. So that those different layers in a ruminant placenta, there's more than, for example, in a primate placenta. And in that episode, you might remember that I talked about how like crazy primate placenta is in terms of like, there's not a lot of layers protecting the maternal side, um, on the placenta. Actually, there's none. So the fetal tissue is bathed in the maternal blood, the fetal epithelium not epithelium, uh, endothelium is bathed in the maternal blood so that like the fetal blood vessels are like directly in contact with the maternal blood. So that's not a lot of layers. And because there's not a lot of layers, baby primate can get antibody, particularly IgG, which is immunoglobulin, immunoglobulin G. Um, there's different kinds of immunoglobulin. There's IgM, there's IgE. Um, IgG is kind of the big one if I remember correctly it's like the one that is like there is the most of it um, if you were like to remember to measure it and then also some of them are harder to measure in general like I want to say IgM is in skin and like mucosal surfaces so it's like hanging out in tissue there's not really a good way to measure it like you can't drop blood and get a sample of tissue so anyway I digress um, the so without those layers between the maternal placenta and like the yeah the maternal side of the placenta and the fetal side of the placenta those big immunoglobulin antibody molecules proteins can get across like there's not a lot of layers for them to have to transverse the um The ruminant placenta has more layers and that's like it's like a toss-up because ruminant placenta is a lot safer for mom than primate placenta like if primate placenta detachment goes awry there is a much higher risk of bleeding on the maternal side than there is if you are a ruminant uh, because there are more layers on the maternal side in a ruminant to protect mom 
So that seems a lot smarter. I don't know who designed primate placenta. It seems real scary to me, um, but whatever. <laughs> I don't. I'm not really that into primates. We kind of freak me out. Um, but so the, all those layers, it's kind of like if you have a bunch of layers of fabric over something and you can't you're not going to get your big proteins your big igg proteins through all those layers of fabric as if you just had one um layer of fabric slash tissue so baby goat is not getting any igg from mom so how is baby goat going to get any igg and baby goat is going to get it from colostrum primates get like i want to say igm IgG mostly, if I remember correctly as I was looking this stuff up, primates get a lot of IgG from the maternal blood because that's where IgG lives. It's in the blood. Um, and I want to say they get IgM from prime, like colostrum milk. Um, but um, baby goats, you know, neonatal baby goat fresh out of mom does not have any protection from before it comes out. And it um like, how is it going to get that protection? Because it's in this nice, warm, clean, sterile environment inside the uterus. And then it's squirted out into the world and where it lands on the floor of the barn and the floor of the barn, it has poop and it has dirt and it has hay and shavings and bacteria. So how is baby goat going to protect itself from all of that stuff that's going to be like, sweet, here's a baby goat and I'm going to munch on it. Uh, so that is why we have colostrum, and colostrum is full of IgG antibodies. And the, the antibodies are specific to the mom. So the mom's mom's developed her immune system based on her life and the stuff that she's been exposed to. So her immune system, and this is why, like, I, the best colostrum you can give to your goat kids is the colostrum from the goat kid's mom because she has been in the environment where the goat kid is going to be. Um, her colostrum is fine-tuned for where she is and therefore where baby goat is. They, um, baby goat, when it comes out and it's looking for colostrum, it's looking for a teat, it's looking for drink, um, how is it going to get that absorbed into its body? And this is why, um, getting colostrum into your goat kid during the first 24 hours of life is very important because there is like a barrier in the gastrointestinal tract and I want to say specifically in the intestine more than like the abomasum for goat kids um, that closes after about 24 hours of life and it happens pretty abruptly so like the gut is it's like even in papers like scientific papers it's it's kind of referred to as being open the gut is open for absorption of these large igg antibody molecules across the mucosal surface of the intestine during the first 24 hours of life and then it shuts it down so then it's closed and it can't come in. And antibodies are just proteins, right? They're just proteins and the digestive system's job is to digest proteins, to break them down to usable components that can be made into other stuff by the body. So if the 
um, if you get colostrum after that 24-hour period, then it doesn't even matter because it's just going to be chewed up. You've got that 24-hour period to get the colostrum in for it to be absorbed across that mucosal surface of the gastrointestinal system and be absorbed into the blood where then the antibodies can hang around and protect the baby goat from the stuff that is in the environment. That's passive transfer of antibodies from the mom to the baby. So I was just like did a quick Google of like passive the phrase passive transfer like seems to like if you google passive transfer like a medical definition comes up and it seems to be used in like different ways in um like human medicine versus veterinary medicine but probably we use it in veterinary medicine more than human medicine uses it and be like more specifically you could say passive transfer of immunity um and this is like a big this is like a big thing in foals um you know, like, foals are, like, you know, I don't know. I never want to breed horses. Those of you who breed horses, you have a higher threshold for stress than I do because I never want to breed horses. Uh, because when those foals are, like, dummy foals and either they, like, need a Madigan squeeze or they need, like, plasma transfusion, they need to be tube fed and blah, blah, blah. That is just, like beyond my capacity for handling and um like passive transfer is like a big a big thing in foals because i don't know it seems like there's more problems with foals than there are goat kids goat kids seem pretty like they want to live in my humble opinion but i digress um so passive transfer of immunity, that's the thing. And there's just a couple more things I want to talk about in terms of like just general colostrum. So uh, assessing colostrum. So I already mentioned that like the best colostrum that you can get for your baby goat is the colostrum from its mom. Um, now, having said that, like if you're dealing with something like CAE, then you do have to be aware of that. But I'm just going to assume for the sake of this discussion that we are not worried about um, transfer of a pathogen through uh, colostrum. So your, your goats are all healthy, your whole herd's tested negative for all the things for multiple years and it's closed and nobody's coming in and all that. Like ideal biosecurity, healthy herd status. Um, so when you are confident about that, then the best absolute absolutely best colostrum you can get for your goat kid is the one from your goat kid's mom. And in my opinion, as long as you are confident in your herd's biosecurity status, then you're feeding that colostrum raw and you don't need to heat treat it, in my opinion. Someone may disagree with me and that's fine. But in my own animals, I, you know, I don't test them every year. I probably will start testing them every year now that we're, like, slightly on the downhill of insanity of moving. That took, like, two years to get to that point. Um, but the, um, oh, I need to go this way because I need to go pick up lunch. Um, the... If you are confident in your herd status, then like feeding colostrum raw, you have a much decreased likelihood of denaturing any of those proteins that are the important IgG proteins. So what is what does that mean? Um, so proteins are <laughs> pro 
protein. All right, I'm going to get into biochem now. Proteins are long chains of amino acids that then the amino acids like like to stick to each other in different ways because they have different like side chains and charges on their side chains and the blah blah blah. They like fold up into these little globs that act like something. Um, so they act like an antibody, um, but. Biology is crazy. Um, So, but uh, proteins are made to like function normally at a certain temperature. So, like if you there, and then be like a temperature range. So, like normal, um, you know, like normal human temperature is what, like ninety eight. 98.6 98.6 degrees, or is it less than that? There was some something I heard lately that was like, oh, maybe our temperature isn't 98.6 degrees, but whatever. Well, let's just say it's 98.6 degrees, then like our normal human enzymes function normally in a range that is closely associated with 98.6 degrees. And the antibodies, the IgGs in goat colostrum or any kind of colostrum are going to be optimally functional and like maintain their appropriate antibody function structure at goat kid temperature or goat body temperature, which is like, you know, hundred to like 103. Um, and if you get above that or you get below that, then by, by a certain range, then it's not going to work anymore. And like you can think of like, so this is called denaturing of proteins. Whenever some kind of external force, temperature, some kind of like solvent or um, soap or, you know, something is applied to a protein that um, an acid or a base that like changes the structure of the protein. That's called denaturing the protein. So, like, the protein, heat is applied to the protein and it changes the shape and then it's no longer going to stick to the antigen, to the pathogen that it was made to stick to. And this is like, if you think about proteins, like, think about, like, egg whites, right? So what happens when you put egg whites into a frying pan is that they become from a liquid to a solid and that is because you're changing the structure of the protein. And if you do that, so if, if your egg whites, like picture if your egg whites were antibodies and they need to be liquid to function and then you put them in the frying pan and now they're solid, they're not going to function anymore. Uh, so that's the same idea with, um, with the colostrum. And why I'm saying this is because if you need to heat treat your colostrum for any reason, you do need to be careful with it um, as far as how you're treating it. If it gets too hot, it's likely going to lose at least some of its efficacy as a transfer of IgG because some of those IgGs are going to denature from the heat treating. And that's probably the most common reason for there to be a problem as far as like treating your colostrum if you're not doing it, if you're not feeding it raw. Um, So, yeah. Um, So how do you know, and then like, how do you know, is this colostrum, like, is this colostrum adequate? How do you know? Um, There's some good, uh, like, data, like, numbers and whatnot in 
the bovine literature and they teach you in vet school about like doing uh, measurements of colostrum on what's called a Brix refractometer um, which is if you do any like brewing or like wine making or these kinds of things where you need to measure like the sugar amount in the things that you're doing um, a bricks refractometer tells you that and um, there's some papers about like how the bricks percentage uh, correlates to the amount of IgG in the colostrum which is useful because the other way to like actually measure IgG is to like send serum to the lab and it's expensive and it's not immediate and it's pain and I would never be able to get Devin to do it but what I can get Devin to do is to take a drop of colostrum and put it on the bricks refractometer and hold it up to the light and measure it and write that number down um, this is the first year we're doing this with our with our goats um, I'm kind of excited about it because then we'll measure total proteins in the goats um, and the kids and see how that all works out um, the numbers are like we have are like extrapolated from cows and um, when you measure the bricks um, percentage of the colostrum and then that gives you an idea like are your lactating ruminants whether they're cows or does uh, are they how how does their colostrum measure up how does how much IgG are they putting in that colostrum and there are variables that um, that you can look at when you're looking at colostrum that can give you an idea just like grossly looking at this colostrum how does it look? So nice colostrum that I get excited about is like thick and syrupy. It's yellow like, I mean, I want to say like a banana. Um, it's like banana yellow. It's like if you pureed a banana, maybe maybe it's a little even more yellow than that. And I don't even like bananas. Like I, I'm like adverse to bananas. I would even go so far as to say I'm adverse to bananas. Um, but colostrum is like like good colostrum is like banana yellow um, and it's thick and it's sticky and it's syrupy um, and like generally when colostrum has that appearance of being yellow and thick and sticky and syrupy it has a high amount of IgG in it um, other things that tend to make good colostrum, at least in the cow literature, are older animals. So animals that have like a more mature, robust immune system with more antibodies hanging around. And that's just a function of like being alive for longer. You have been alive for longer, so you have seen more stuff. And your immune system is like, I got us covered for more stuff than this little young whippersnapper who's only been around. You know, this is its first lactation. So that is another thing. So, like, gross appearance, age of the um, animal, and then the actual volume of colostrum produced. Now, I am slightly, like this, I'm collecting, like I said, I'm collecting data on this in my own herd this year because my, I mean, because I like data, but because... Like, I think it's hard to extrapolate this information from cows to goats because cows almost invariably, the vast majority of the time, they have one calf, right? Like, twins and calves are not common. And our goats have 
like I would say like a single is less common than a multiple birth so you got twins you got triplets you got quads you got quintuplets like you got the whole gamut of number of babies born and my I've never measured this before so I could be wrong but my like gut feeling about colostrum and milk production in general at least early on in the lactation generally is that if there's one baby like that mom is going to make a little bit less milk than if she had three babies and also if there's one baby that mom is going to make less colostrum than if she had three babies so how do you extrapolate like how do you control for the number of babies born I'm not sure. I will be collecting data on this in my own herd this year, and then maybe I will look at it over the winter when I have time to look at such things. But that will be an interesting little experiment for me. Uh, so, in at least if you're looking at cows, you've got gross appearance of colostrum, you've got the consideration of how many lactations that animal has had, like how old is that animal, and... Um, how much volume and the volume part talking about cows um is like if there's less colostrum so you got a cow and she makes like a quart of colostrum and then you've got another cow and she makes like two quarts of colostrum i feel like they probably should make more than that because calves like you like to feed them like a gallon of colostrum but anyway um so you got one cow that makes a quart of colostrum. You got another cow that makes two quarts of colostrum. The cow that made the one quart of colostrum, that colostrum is likely higher, uh, like, density of IgG. So higher density of antibodies, like more bang for your buck as far as antibodies per ounce of fluid, if that makes sense. Um, again, I'm a little bit less, like super convinced about you know how much can that, that particular thing about assessing colostrum quality I'm a little bit less like oh we can definitely extrapolate this over to goats from cows because of the whole multiple babies thing but you know we'll see what I you know what my actual experience is with actual numbers and not that that's like the be all and end all of the answer to this question but you know data numbers better than just my like gut feeling so yeah um so that's like assessing your colostrum quality I can't remember hold on I'll pause okay had to look it up but as far as like your bricks measurements when you're looking at your cow colostrum um the percentage of your bricks at 22% is correlated to be 50 milligrams per milliliter of IgG um, as far as bovine colostrum so that is like a good quality colostrum I couldn't remember I had to google my gut feeling was like 20% is fine so uh, I was pretty close um, 22% is good so that's how that goes and then as you go along so um I think this is the other thing I forgot that I wanted to talk about. So what happens then? Baby goat gets its high quality colostrum. It's nice and yellow and syrupy. Its bricks is 28%. You got a whole, the whole lot of the colostrum into the baby goat. How much colostrum do you feed the baby goat? As you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I'm really bad at saying like, ooh, this animal is this big, feed it this much food. Um because I'm always feeding groups of animals and I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm bad at it. 
um, my, but since we have been doing more like data collection, it's certainly like weighing our goat kids more over the past few years. Like, it should go without saying that a smaller goat kid needs less colostrum because it is smaller. It has a smaller body, it has a smaller blood volume, it has a smaller gastrointestinal system, it has a smaller stomach to fill up with colostrum. And you certainly can have goat kids, like Devin just texted me the pictures of a gigantic goat kid that Clove had that was a 9.6 pound doe, um, and that's a big baby. Um, and she was a single. And then, like, if you have triplets, then maybe the triplets are going to be, like, five pounds each. And that's, like, almost, you know, half the size of that big single doe. So the five-pound triplets, like, do not need the same volume of colostrum as the nine-and-a-half-pound single. Um, the nine-and-a-half-pound single, I would start off by giving it, like, probably eight ounces of colostrum. Um... And so it's like, what does it, what does it weigh in pounds? And then maybe like an ounce or two less than that. And, that, and that's my like quick and dirty method of how much do, does this goat kid need to, to be drinking, um, for colostrum. And also this is kind of the thing about like how much colostrum does mom make? Mom makes however much colostrum she makes in the first 24 hours and then she should have made enough colostrum for the number of kids that she has. This is again me being like this is kind of my gut feeling from having done this for a while. I might be wrong. We're actually measuring things this year so maybe I'm wrong. But we'll see. Um so that's that. Um, how much do you give? And then how do you know if it worked? So most of us know that the colostrum was good and it did its job if the goat kid is healthy and robust and doesn't get sick. Um, you got the colostrum into the goat kid in the first 24 hours and the goat kid survives and thrives and doesn't get sick because those passively transferred maternal antibodies stick to all the bad guys that try to kill the goat kid and they do their job. And while those antibodies are around, so antibodies also, like talked about denaturing proteins from like heat and stuff like that, antibodies also, just like everything biological, um, they have like a finite lifespan. So, um, you know, the proteins also, the, the IgG antibody proteins are like hanging around in the bloodstream. They're bouncing off stuff. They might stick to some stuff that's not an antigen. They might, you know, stick partially stick to some other stuff and then get pulled off and things just like there's entropy. Things break down over time. So those maternal antibodies, um, you know, they don't last forever. They don't last forever. Maybe like six to eight weeks probably is our like maternal antibody window. But conveniently, six to eight weeks is a really good period of time for a young, brand new, rare and to go naive immune system to start to make its own stuff and figure out what is me, what is the world, what is bad, um, what you know, what is good, what is going to kill me, what is not going to kill me, what is self, what is not self. So there's all this like crazy immunology stuff happening in the first weeks of a critter's life where it's learning self from not self and, um, well, the things that are not self are identified and identified as bad and then the body create the body starts to create its own antibodies and then it can protect itself and make its own stuff to protect it 
and that's good because mom's antibodies don't last forever. I think that is the story of normal passive transfer and oh um hmm. I'm just pulling in my place and realizing that it's curbside only which is slightly inconvenient um oh well this is gonna be a longer sit here than I intended oh well um <laughs> So the um, that's the story of the normal, and next episode will be the story of the not normal, and I hope this was educational, and I'm going to listen to it and see if it was maybe somewhat coherent, and I think that's going to do it for the moment, and I will talk to you guys all next time.